We move on in our study on Christian Essentials, having finished up the uh, concept of eternal security, and if you missed that, you can pick that up on the podcast, I think. It's already on, right? We have loaded that. I do have tonight the handouts for the rest of the study. Eternal security was the last page you had, I believe. Tonight we're going to be talking about the Holy Spirit, which is a good tagline to go along with this morning's study, this message. I just realized there was a page missing. I couldn't find page 22, and I have it in mine. I didn't realize it, so yours is going to be kind of confusing a little bit. I'll add a page 22. We're missing the, the page on healing uh, when we, we talked about the Holy Spirit's work. We're going to do this in several sets because of the manner in which people have abused the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. It requires more time. We spend a lot of time in Jesus Christ, and we talk about that a lot of cardinal doctrines there, the virgin birth, the deity of Christ, the, the uh, incarnation, things along that line, and the death of Christ, the resurrection. All those things are cardinal doctrines. When we get to the Holy Spirit, there seems to be a lot fewer cardinal doctrines about the Holy Spirit. And that's a danger, because if that's the case, um, and maybe that's the reason why people have manipulated and abused this doctrine so badly over church history, especially recent church history, but not only in recent church history. And so these are cyclical, there's nothing new under the sun. And what we have seen is an abuse of this doctrine, in our day especially, that we get into where it's over, it's emphasized to the point that it doesn't really represent the Holy Spirit anymore. And we're going to talk about that. So because of what's out there in our world, I have to take time to address these things. So I have to take time to address the charismatic movement, modern charismatic movement. I have to take time to address each stage of that. The, the, they talk about spirit baptism, and they talk about various manifestations of the Holy Spirit, apostolic gifts. We have to we have to delve into all these things because other groups have abused them. And I don't like doing doctrine that way, but it's necessary because of that. Uh, and I would have really liked to have been around 150 years ago when you didn't have all that to mill you to teach the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. But then we also wouldn't have had the precision that we have, and so to some degree it, it separates the wheat from the tares a little bit here. So we want to really talk about this, and there's going to be some discussion, and it's okay. I have had people leave my church at the end of this study, this church at the end of this study, because they didn't agree with our doctrine of the Holy Spirit. Uh, they wanted to practice certain things that we're going to look at Scripture and say, is this biblical activity? And... Um, and there are churches that will take a non-position, let you believe whatever you want, practice whatever you want, uh, and we'll just get along on the other ones. And like I said, they are more representative historically of the fact that we have almost no essential doctrine of the Holy Spirit other than that he is God and that he is here. Uh, we have very few essentials here, which is frightening because... Of all the sins that Jesus Christ says can be forgiven, there's one that isn't. And that is to blaspheme who? Holy Spirit. 
well, if I know that's the only sin God doesn't forgive, I'm going to make sure I know the Holy Spirit and this doctrine, because it must have some essential about it, that God says, I'm not going to forgive you if you blaspheme him. And so you can speak against God, he speaks against Jesus Christ, you speak against the Holy Spirit, you're in some trouble there. That's dangerous, and we're going to talk a little bit about that sin as part of this study as well. So let's look at some introductory stuff that hopefully you're familiar with. You'll see that we're going to do a whole page on his work. That's page 20, 19 is the introductory aspects of who he is and what he is. And then we're going to look at his works, and we have them listed out A through H. And um, then we're going to have a, a section on spirit baptism. We're going to have a section on gifts of the spirit. We're going to have a section on healing. We're going to ha- and then we're going to get into the church. And so healing is the only page you don't have, and I will make sure to get it. I knew I was, I couldn't find that page. I don't know how it got out of my original doc, my original copies. So we'll, uh, I'll get that to you. Uh, so the doctrine of the Holy Spirit is called pneumatology. Uh, our study of the Holy Spirit is going to be uh, a long one because of the great breadth of doctrine, correct and incorrect or erroneous, being taught on the subject. Throughout the history of the church, the teaching of the Holy Spirit has radically swung back and forth between obscurity and dominance. Once again, we will attempt to find biblical balance teaching on this very important doctrine. So, number one, Roman numeral one, Holy Spirit is God. And hopefully you have no qualms with that. I know you haven't had this ahead of time to study and look up these verses. So let's look up a few of these. These are some of the demonstrable proofs of Holy Spirit equal God. Now, is this necessary? Yes. One of the positions that is out there is the Holy Spirit isn't God. It is a part of God. And I agree that spirit means breath. They say, well, this is just the breath of God. Some say this is the power of God. This is uh, some emanation of God. And it is not a God. It is not God himself. It is not a personal being. And so they have relegated the Holy Spirit to something less than a person. And you, see, you hear that because when you, you, when you talk about the Holy Spirit, usually you use the word the in front of his name, uh, which isn't a bad thing in Greek because actually before Jesus' name, usually it's the Jesus Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, but we usually use the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, and kind of talk about him as if he's a thing instead of a person. And that is a position that has been around in the church for a very long time that we want to oppose. So when I say that the Holy Spirit is God, it's not a part of God. It's not a, a facet of God. He is God. And that's what we're trying to demonstrate through these passages. So let's look at Acts chapter 5. This should be a, one that you're very familiar with. We're going to go through these very quickly. Uh, someone want to read Acts chapter 5, verses 3 and 4. If you've got your Bibles, and uh, if you're thinking ahead, someone else could look up Matthew 3, and uh, someone else could look up 1 Peter 1. You should have that one ready to go. We preached on that not too long ago. Jude 20 and 21. We're going to look at all of these because you haven't had them ahead of time. Acts 5, 3 and 4. Who can read that for me? Thank you. All right, so what, how is this a demonstration the Holy Spirit is God? All right, interchangeable. In verse 3, you lied to Holy Spirit. In verse 4, that means you lied to God. You lied to a person. You can't lie to inanimate objects. You lied to personal beings. You lied to Holy Spirit, and now you lied to God. They are interchangeable. You have not lied to men, but to God. 
And so the association in their mind was the Holy Spirit was God. Let's go to Matthew 3, 16, 17. Someone read that for us. All right. Now we have another representation of Holy Spirit. How is this a demonstration of his deity? The reason this verse is in there is because what do we find about Spirit of God? All right. He is distinguishable from the Father. Okay, do you see it? So Jesus is being baptized. The Spirit of God descends upon Jesus Christ. And you hear a voice. Where's the voice coming from? The dove? God the Father in heaven. So you have a voice in heaven. You have Jesus in the water. And you have the Spirit descending upon him. So they are distinct, he is distinguishable from the Father. He is not a part of the Father, an emanation Father. He is distinguishable. Um, so does the Holy Spirit look like a dove? He descended like a dove. How does a dove descend? Swoops. Okay, so the Holy Spirit swooped down on Jesus Christ. <laughs> I have a lot of doves in my backyard, so I get to watch them fly around. I also have pigeons, but they don't last very long if they stay in my yard very long. So they don't last. But uh, doves are okay. If I can catch them, they're really delicious, but I'm telling you more than I should. So it, it came down like a dove. It didn't look like a dove. The manner in which Spirit came down upon Jesus was comparable in the author's mind to what a dove looked like when it comes down. And I know we like to use the symbol of a dove to represent the Holy Spirit from this passage, but that's because we're too ignorant of simile and metaphor and don't recognize that they are not saying that the Spirit was a dove, it's saying that some, how the Spirit moved was comparable to how a dove moves. And similarly in Acts chapter 2, we're going to see that as well in the coming of the Holy Spirit there. Let's go to Matthew 28, 19. This is the Great Commission. You should be able to quote this. All right, you are baptizing him in the name of the triune God. Again, we went through these passages with the triunity. Uh, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. You baptize them in all their names. So the name of the Father, the name of the Son, and the name of the Holy Spirit. Please notice that, that that is what we baptize in. And so it is not uh, one, one separate from the other, or that one great, it's the triune God there. So he is God. Let's uh, look at 1 Peter 1-2. I'll read that one because I, really, I have a marker already there. It says, Elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and sanctification of the Spirit for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace be multiplied. So that's how we are elect. And again, that we have the foreknowledge of the Father, the sanctification of the Spirit, sprinkling of the blood of Christ. You have the three present there. Let's go to the book of Jude, verse 20 and 21. There are no chapter divisions in Jude because there's only one chapter. Let's read that. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith, praying in this Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. Again, we have the triune God represented there. And you are praying in the Holy Spirit. So it is by him that we pray. And let's go to 1 Corinthians 1. Someone else would like to read that one? Verses 21 and 22. I think I got the wrong verse in here, though. <laughs> No, it's 2 Corinthians, sorry. Please make that notation in there. After all these years, I'm still making corrections. 2 Corinthians 1 is a guarantee, and this is a phrase we talked about this morning. 
Let's go to Galatians 4, 6, that the Holy Spirit's a guarantee of our salvation, distinct from the Father's ministry and the Son's ministry. All right, so the Spirit of God is not the breath of God. It is a, an individual who has a name, who can be grieved, who all these things, who is with you. Is God uh, in you. Emmanuel is God with us, that's Jesus Christ. Uh, God in us is the Holy Spirit and has distinct identity. And so we have that equivalency there, that he's equal with God. We also have him identified uh, with divine attributes, and uh, those are listed there. We should expect that, uh, but it specifically talks about that the Holy Spirit's eternal, omniscient, powerful, omnipresent, uh, don't you know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, which is in you, which you have of God, and you're not your own, therefore glorify God in your body and your spirit, which are God's. And so wherever, so the Holy Spirit is obviously in more than just one place at a time if he fills every Christian, correct? Wherever you go. So I'm omnipresence and uh, let letter see the Spirit performs work only God can do. And this is very important in understanding the essential nature of the Holy Spirit. Without Holy Spirit, you are none of His. You are not God's uh, without His presence in our life. And so He has to do these works. And let's look at what those works are. What are the works that only God does? So let's begin with Titus 3.5. And again, this should be a passage you should be able to quote for me. Not by works of righteousness. Keep going. But according to his mercy, he saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. And so the renewing of who you are, of your mind, that all things are, are made new. The renewing in ministry is, is associated with the Holy Spirit. So he does God type of work. I can't make you new, uh, but the Holy Spirit can. Romans 8.11, again, this is a passage we looked at this morning and, uh, and studied, so I'm not going to take a lot of time on it either. In Romans 8.11, but if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, all right? The spirit of God raised Jesus from the dead. The spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. And so that's attributed there. Second Peter, that, that's the resurrection. Second Peter 1.21 has to do with the inspiration of Scripture. Holy men of God. They are carried along or moved by the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit inspired Scripture. He carried men along. That's something only God can do. So it's divine work attributed to him. And so he, so that what is written is the word of God, but it is really the Holy Spirit that we attribute that ministry to. And then John chapter 3 isn't our strongest one because there's a lot of debate. In fact, uh, I was looking at my Eastern Orthodox copy of God's word and what they did with John 3 because our Word of Life kiddos are memorizing this passage. And uh, John 3, of course, is where Jesus talked with Nicodemus about being born again. And verse 5 says, Most surely I say to you, unless one is born of water and born of, and, and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. 
Uh, Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. And so the Spirit of God is that which uh, is involved in us being born again. All right? So we have this establishment that Spirit is God. It is one of the manifestations, one of the persons of the doctrine. If you make him less than God or uh, a part of him, you are doing error. You are doing serious error. And here I've even listed some of the, or, some of the uh, error that's been out there. Tropici says that he is a, the highest ranking angel. He's not actually a deity. He's the highest ranking angel above the archangels. Samosada. He is another term for God's grace. He's not, it's not really a person. It's just an aspect of God, as I said. Irenaeus taught that he is divine wisdom. He is simply an attribute of God, one of the attributes of God, not a person of himself. And Origen, Origen is a, is a frightening guy, he was created by the Son and third in rank. And uh, a lot of what Origen of course, Origen viewed all of Scripture pretty much as non-literal. Uh, it was, and so he could make it say whatever he wanted. And, uh, and much of Jehovah's Witness is, is driven by stuff that we can attribute largely to Origen, where Jesus was created by God, and then Jesus created the Holy Spirit. And so they're not co-equal and co-eternal. So the Holy Spirit is God. The Holy Spirit is a person. And so he has feelings. <laughs> you ever think about that? The Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit has feelings. You can hurt his feelings. What feeling particularly does the Bible list? He can be grieved. All right? Let me share with you that word in the Old Testament when God was grieved that he made man. Remember when he came down from heaven to see what was going on on earth and it says he was sorry he made man. And that's an important passage in some of our theological development of God in relationship to time because there's people who say, well, God exists outside of time. But, uh, and that may be true since he created it, but it doesn't mean he works outside of time. Or on that occasion, he could have just backed up time and not created man. Correct? But it says he was sorry he made man and he was going to destroy man from the earth, not uncreate him. He was going to destroy him. So grieving is shared here by the Holy Spirit. They do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, which is our seal. Uh, and further, the whole idea of him being a comforter and a paraclete, uh, a counselor, is, is couched in the whole idea that he can feel with you your pain. He can feel what you're dealing with, and he, and he associates with you. In letter B, Jesus uses personal pronouns to refer to him, not it. And this is a very careful formula that's not only in John, but it's also in Thessalonians. And so let's go to John 16. You should be familiar with this because we just preached the Gospel of John, verse 7 and following. This is a very important Greek formula. You miss it in the English, but in the Greek it is very precise, and it's really bad Greek, but it's really good theology. You ready for this? He says, 
in, uh, in verse 7, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. If I, but if I depart, I will send him to you. Keep reading. And when he has come, he will convict the world of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. So what's the big deal? The big deal is that the word for spirit is neuter. And in Greek, all pronouns have to agree with the noun. And the noun is neuter, so every single pronoun should have been neuter. It should have been it, 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 it. But Jesus Christ doesn't call spirit an it. He calls the spirit he, him. All those personal pronouns mean that Jesus Christ understood that while the word spirit is neuter in Greek, we cannot use the neuter it referring to him because he's not an it. He's a he. So he uses the masculine personal pronouns for a neuter noun. Really bad Greek, really good theology, very instructional. This also is used in Thessalonians talking about that which must be revealed. Okay, when you talk about, oh, I'm sorry, that, that which is restraining. So what is restraining is not an it, it's a he. It's the Holy Spirit that's restraining. And so this is a formula used in Scripture. We use the word spirit, neuter, and we don't use a neuter it. We use a masculine he. And we miss it kind of in the English. It kind of goes over our head, but it is very much there and very strong statement. Uh, letter C, the Holy Spirit speaks. Does he speak? Well, we're in verse chapter 16. Let's go to verse 13. It says he will not speak on his own authority. Whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will tell you things to come. All right? And so as a person, he can speak into your life. Can you give me one biblical example of the Holy Spirit speaking to someone? Nobody's answering. For those of you on the podcast, that moment of silence was because we are dumbfounded. Coming up with an example of the Spirit speaking to someone. In the New Testament, we have lots of instances where it says that God spoke to them, but it doesn't say the Spirit spoke to them. The Spirit of the Lord came upon people and they did great acts, but normally it uses the word Jehovah, uh, which we understand to be the second person of the Godhead, Jesus Christ, and so pre-incarnate. So when they tied up Paul, that was a prophet speaking, so we had prophets and prophetesses speaking. Okay, uh, when did the Holy Spirit speak? We have a couple of instances. It's hard, isn't it? That was like, uh, the Bible, Jesus says he's going to speak. He's going to lead you. He's going to speak on his own authority, but he's going to tell you things. Uh, one of those times was when Paul wanted to go into Asia, and what did he say? The Spirit forbade me. I couldn't go into Asia. And so then we had the vision of the people over uh, in Macedonia, say, come over here and help us. And then he crossed over the Aegean Sea and went to uh, that region instead of Asia. And so, and then again, we have uh, instances that we have this, this direction of the Holy Spirit. And uh, I think a lot of times we t talk about their activity of dreams and visions. I think we have activity of the Holy Spirit speaking to us. What is our expectation of how the Holy Spirit speaks to us? 
And also, we already studied that passage. How does the Holy Spirit speak? Through his word. So when Paul sat down and wrote scripture, when Peter sat down and wrote scripture, who were they hearing? The Holy Spirit. He carried them along. He, he, he moved them to write what they wrote. Holy men of God spoke as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And so we have the Spirit's speech, if you will, here. Uh, doesn't mean that he can't speak beyond that, because he certainly can. And of course, we also recognize his intelligence, because he's a person. Uh, Jesus Christ, again, talks about that in John 14, 26. But the helper of the Holy Spirit, whom my Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to remembrance all things that I said to you. So again, dual ministry that is all intelligent. He was going to teach you and help you to remember. All right? So that's not affecting your emotions. That's affecting your mind. And so that's why we pray before we study God's Word. We're asking the Holy Spirit to work in us, in our mind, as an intelligent being. And then we do note the Holy Spirit has a will. We know that Jesus had a will separate from the Father, right? How do we know that? The prayer in Gethsemane. So we know that Jesus had a will and the Father had a will, and they were different. So Jesus said, if you will, Father, let this cup pass for me. That's what I want. I want to not have to die on the cross. But then he concludes his prayer by saying, but not my will, but your will be done. So we have two separate wills. We have the will of the Father and will of the Son. Does the Holy Spirit have his own will? Well, let's see. 1 Corinthians 12, this is about spiritual gifts. We're going to come back to this much later, uh, another week. But one of the same Spirit works all things, distributing to each one individually as he wills. The Spirit of God chooses how to work in each person as he wants. So as his work comes into your life, he chooses to gift you differently than he chooses to gift others. It's his will. It's his choice. He's not just exercising whatever the Son says, because this is an area that God says the Spirit does whatever he wants in your life. If he's going to gift you to preach, he's going to gift you to preach. And, and if he's going to gift you to be hospitable, he's going to gift you to be hospitable. If he's going to gift you to be a giver, he's going to gift you to be a giver. If he's going to, he, it's his choice. If he's going to gift you more than one way, he can, it's his choice. He chooses that. He has a will. And of course, we know that we relate to him as to a person. We can lie to him, we can quench him, we can resist him, we can sin against him. And that's all in Scripture, and you don't do that against object or intangible thing. You only do that toward a person. So another false doctrine that's heresy is that Jesus or that the Spirit of God is less than a person. And again, you saw the ones above. And uh, modernly, we have people that he is a force. He is the force. Where did they get that verbiage? He got it from Star Wars. <laughs> it became very popular after the 70s. Strange, huh? He's the force of God. The Holy Spirit is not a force. He is a person. And so don't view him like Star Wars views, views the force that has a good side and a bad side. Don't go to the dark side. You know, there is no such... That, that, that 
language. You need to be divorced from the ministry of the Holy Spirit. He has power, yes. Is he the force of God? No. All the Father, the Son, and the Spirit all have power and authority because they are co-equal, co-eternal. So, we have 10 minutes. Any questions on this aspect? So you must believe that Spirit of God is God, and you must believe that he is a person, which is a little bit redundant because you can't, you shouldn't, if your definition of God is that he is the uh, self-existing person, then, and I say Spirit is God, then he is a person. But I need to delineate that because of what's out there. All right, let's go through very quickly. We might not get very far, but we'll at least get through Roman numeral 1 and finish this page out. In the Old Testament, what does the Holy Spirit do in the Old Testament and the Gospels? Well, he was there at creation. It says the Spirit of God hovered or above the waters. Okay, so the Spirit of God was on the waters in Genesis 1. So he was there at creation. So that kind of rules out the idea that Jesus created him, right? Some later time. He hovered above the waters. So he was there at creation. And so that's one of the works of the Holy Spirit was participating in creation. He was there bringing out prophecy and scripture, which we already looked at 2 Peter 1.21. And lots of times it references the Spirit of God coming upon someone and they prophesied. I gave you a very interesting list of prophets. I wanted to get your attention. I want you to notice who the Spirit of God comes upon. Is it just people of faith? No. Ezekiel? Oh, yes. David? Oh, yes. These are people of faith. But what about Balaam? Balaam was not a person of faith. Right? But the Spirit of God came upon him and overrode his will. It's one of the rare exceptions of when God says, I'm not going to allow you to curse Israel. I'm going to come in and force you, overcome your will, and force you to bless Israel, not once, but multiple times. And so can this, so here's the, can the Spirit of God override the will of man? Yes. Does he on a regular basis? No. But, it, but so strong is God's blessing and promises to Israel that he will not permit Balaam to come and curse. And by the way, how does Israel view Balaam? Do you know? You do know because you know your New Testament. How did they view him? As a hero? How does the New Testament describe him? He's an evil man. He was evil. He's not in the faith chapter. No. He was an evil man. It was the curse of Balaam that they wanted to curse upon him. And, and throughout all of Israel's history, he is considered one of the biggest enemies of Israel. Why? When, when he blessed them multiple times. Do you remember what happened afterwards? What did he do? He gave advice to the king that hired him to curse Israel. What was his advice? Yeah, that you can get them to stumble in their covenant relationship with God by basically setting out these, these traps of, 
of getting them to, to go after your false gods and, and get them, distract them from following the one true God. So Balaam was not a man of faith. He advised them, the king, how to interrupt the relationship between Israel and Jehovah. You can't call down Jehovah's curse, but you can trip up Israel in their walk. And that's what his advice was to him. Well, that's satanic. And that's where Balaam stays. And from there on, he is an enemy of Israel all through. There's probably only one or two enemies of Israel that are viewed uh, worse than Balaam. And one of those is, is uh, the guy in the book of Esther, Haman, that they won't even use his name. Okay? And so uh, I put Balaam on there so you can see the Spirit of God is going to do And then I put in Saul. Remember the thing, is Saul among the prophets? That on one occasion God allowed Saul to prophesy. The Spirit of God came upon him and he prophesied. Was he in a state of obedience or disobedience when that happened? Well, you have to wonder, right? Because Saul was up and down. Now you're thinking hard. Was he in obedient there or disobedient? Uh, and remember that the Spirit of God left him and an evil spirit came upon him. So in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit's ministry was, was what we call temporal. It came and it went. It wasn't a permanent indwelling, although great men of faith, it says, were filled with the Spirit for most of their lives. Um, but it wasn't a promise like what we have. And so we have letter C, temporary filling for special tasks. We have on that list, Probably one that uh, gets your attention should be Samson, all right, because he failed. And he, he, he let the secret out of the bag. He allowed them to cut his hair. He was humiliated. But at the end, he repented and asked for a final filling. Uh, and the Spirit of God filled him. And then he killed more at his death than he did during his life. And then, who is Bazalel? Ba Bezalel, sorry, Bezalel. Who is Bezalel? Does anyone know? B-E-Z-A-L-E-L. -E Does anybody know? All right, your assignment for next week is to tell me who Bezalel is. Find him in the scriptures. Read his little story. It's not very long. And that's why you don't know who, who he is. <laughs> and come back and tell me. And again, Saul is another one. And so let's see if you'll do your homework. And then letter D. In relation to Jesus' ministry, again, we have the coming of the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit filled Jesus. And this is why Jesus' ministry began after his baptism. Because as we already read, the Spirit descended upon him at his baptism, and then his ministry began. Jesus Christ did not minister as the Son of God. He ministered as a vessel of the Holy Spirit comparable to us. That's why when people said, you do these things by the power of Beelzebub, he didn't say, you are blaspheming me. He didn't say, you're blaspheming the Father. He said, if you attribute my work to Beelzebub, you're blaspheming the Holy Spirit. Because that was the power by which Jesus did miracles. And so we recognize that even Jesus is in this pre-church age during the period of the gospels and ministered and we see his baptism and then what happens and of course in Luke not only the 
ministry, but the Spirit of God drives him into the wilderness for his temptation. So the Spirit of God was leading in Jesus' life like he leads in our life, as we're going to talk about in the secondary list. And so this is the activity of the Holy Spirit. He was active. We can look at times when great things, normal men did great things by the power of the Holy Spirit. Spirit of God came upon them and they ran over there. You remember when that one guy outran the chariots? Right? He out, uh, was that Elijah or Elisha? I always get them confused. Outran Ahab's chariots to get down and the mountain. And so, must have been Elijah. And so, um, you know, the Spirit of God came upon them. Okay? So this is the Holy Spirit's activity. He was, didn't come into being at Acts chapter 2. He is, nor at Jesus' baptism. He was there in the Old Testament as well. Any questions on that? Comments on his Old Testament ministry? His activity there from creation on. As I said at the beginning, we're going to be studying spirit baptism, spiritual gifts separately. We're going to delve in next week on this page of all the things he does now during our age what we expect of him. Uh, and you can see letter E is a different study. Uh, that's the gifts. You'll notice that there is that the baptism is letter C. And uh, we're going to be just briefly talking about, please look up these verses and work through this list and the applications for them. And we'll get into that next week. This is a great study in correlation with this morning's message, huh? So, good. Any other questions? Yes, God is a spirit. The only presentation of God that you can see is Jesus Christ. And that's when we look at the descent passage and we look at Acts chapter 2, these physical manifestations of the Holy Spirit, one comparing to like a dove and the other one to like a flame of fire, are opportunities that God has given to manifest, to show the Holy Spirit. But the Bible talks about him as, a, as God, but not with no expectation that we'll see him. He's a spirit. The word spirit means breath. And so if you see a breath, you can't see a breath, but you know I'm breathing, right? Words tell you that breath is coming out of me. Same thing if I whistle. My lips are moving, but technically, it's none of that that's making the sound. What's making the sound is air going across my vocal cords, and the air you can't see. Except unless it's very cold, and then you can see it, right? I can see your breath. Well, on occasions, God allows you to see his spirit, but they're very rare. And you see it at the baptism, you see it at Pentecost, and you don't really see him much outside of that. But he is a person. But God is a spirit. No one has seen God any time. He is the revealer of God, Jesus Christ. That's who we'll see face to face, not the Father. Anything else? Let's pray and we'll get out of here. Lord God, we do thank you for your love for us. We thank you for your word. And we thank you for your spirit within us. And uh, what a precious gift you've given to us in allowing him to take up residence and, and 
to comfort us, to convict us, to encourage us, to do all things. We look forward to studying together more fully. But Lord, we uh, just want to recognize his work, and we pray that we might be careful to develop a relationship with him. We often think of developing a relationship with the Father, with, with Jesus Christ, but Lord, we want to have a relationship with your Spirit as well, an intimate one, as that you might guide us and direct in our lives, empower us, and guarantee our inheritance. And so Lord, we pray for your help in that, that we might be more sensitive, more careful in knowing you and in living uh, with you and walking with you in this life. In Christ Jesus' name, amen.